Good morning to each of you. I invite you to take God's Word and turn with me to the book of James. If perchance you don't have a Bible with you, uh, feel free to take a look around under the, the chairs. They are scattered throughout the auditorium. They're there for your use. If you have to lean over someone, that's all right. But uh, make sure you have a Bible in your hands. And uh, turn with me, as I just said, to the book of James. Uh, Isaiah the prophet records the words of the Lord. As the rain and the snow came down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. Uh, the word of the Lord, that which proceeds from his mouth, is the very thing we possess in our hands this day. Are we aware of that? Do we appreciate God's real presence among us in and through his word? That as we open it, we consider it, we study it, we hear from it, we are actually hearing the voice of God. I pray you've come with that mindset and uh, with that exhortation before us, hear now the word of the Lord, his words to us, James 1 verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Last Sunday, we looked at verse 1, and we made three very simple uh, observations. Uh, first of all, we noted a, su a surprising author. The author identifies himself, first word, first verse, James, apparently the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. I say this is a surprising author given what we read of James back in John 7, which is what? He, along with his bro Christ's brothers, did not believe in him. As a matter of fact, they rejected him. And yet at this point, we have James actually sitting down and writing part of the Bible. Evidently, something has happened. The man has undergone a miraculous conversion. We gleaned a very simple lesson. The lesson was what? Conversion is a miracle of God's sovereign grace. The second surprise in the verse is the title with which James describes himself. You would think he would say, James, a half-brother of the Lord Jesus, therefore listen up. He doesn't say that. James, an elder of the church of Jerusalem. He doesn't say that. How does he identify himself? James, eh? Here's all I am. I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he puts on his CV. That's what's at the top of the man's resume. 
And we derived an extremely important lesson from that, didn't we? What was it? Servanthood is the fruit of God's sovereign grace. That when we have stood in the shadow of the cross, and when we have understood what the Lord Jesus has gone through for us upon Calvary's cross, when we understand we are debtors to mercy alone, the result is what? Humility, poverty of spirit, as manifested in what? Servanthood. The third surprise in the verse is his audience to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. And yet as we read the epistle, we learn he's not actually writing to Jews. He is writing to Christians. He is writing to those who believe in the Lord Jesus. So why at the outset does he identify them appropriating this language? Why does he take this image of the tribes, Israel, who, who, who were dispersed as a result of the Assyrian and the Babylonian invasions, why does he take that and now apply it to believers, apply it to Christians, apply it to the church? Because the point is parallel. That just as the Jews, after the Babylonian invasion, were exiles looking, longing for their homeland, so too Christians are of the dispersion. We are longing for our homeland. And the lesson was what? That exile is the natural condition of God's people in this world. Hard lesson for us to learn. I said it last week. I'll repeat it. The majority of us in the North American church have lost sight of the Christian sojourn as one of exile. I know I have. We're exiles, we're aliens, we're foreigners, we're strangers, we're refugees. It has a number of implications. I'm belaboring the point. Why? Simply because the book of James makes little sense until we come to terms with this. Until we come to terms with our position that we are in the world, but we are not of the world, that we are refugees. Until we have that kind of a mindset, much, if not most, of what James is going to go on to say in this book is going to pass right over our heads at 40,000 feet. We won't be able to relate to it. We won't be able to actually get into it. There will be such a disconnect from our perception of reality and James' portrayal of reality. And so at the end of last Sunday's service, I was pressed for time. And so in rapid fashion, I rhymed off. I can't even remember how many I got to last week, maybe five or six. There are actually seven uh, implications of a theology of exile. And so to make sure I slow down and to make sure you don't file any complaints, I've put them on the overhead. And I'm just going to bring them up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven read them off, count one steamboat, two steamboat, three steamboat, make our way through. Extremely important because this is what we're going to see in the rest of the letter. We're going to see the implications of this exile mindset. And so there's number one. You have it right behind me. A theology of exile. Understanding our refugee status in this world will save us from the soul-crushing clutches of materialism. He's going to get to it later in this chapter. He's going to come back to it in chapter 3. 
and he's going to come back to it again in chapter 5. Just how important this is. A theology of exile, rescuing us, preserving us from the soul-crushing clutches of materialism. Number two, it will enable us to see life's trials as a necessary precursor to the life to come. There is this life, and there is a, the life to come. And I believe I put at the top of the sermon notes, uh, life, this life is what? One of testing, not resting. Resting is the life to come. Testing is the life at present. And James is going to teach us this. As a matter of fact, it's what we're going to get back to in just a few moments. The verses I read in chapter 1, it's where we're going to camp out probably for the next three or four Sundays, that a theology of exile enables us to see the trials of this life, what we go through right now, as a necessary precursor to the life to come. Number three, a theology of exile will guard us from falling, stumbling headlong into fits of despair and despondency as we look at the state of the world. And we're all prone to that, aren't we? We pick up the newspaper, we look at the headlines on the internet, wherever, wherever it comes to us, however it comes at us, and we look at the condition of the world, the fallen world we find ourselves in, and it is very easy to develop what? An extreme spirit of negativity. It is very easy to begin to throw our hands up in the air and bemoan everything that is happening and find ourselves in these fits of despair and despondency. We need to remember we're exiles. And we need to remember that God has a sovereign plan for his exiles. And that when we recall that and we keep that in the forefront of our minds, uh, it will save us. It will guard us from those fits of despair and despondency. Number four, it will keep us from equating the advancement of God's kingdom with what? With the advancement of any earthly nation or political leader or social agenda. We need to hear that. We need to hear that as we enter this, the final lap of this election cycle. We need to hear that no matter how you vote, whoever the next president is. Uh, we, need, we need to hear and we need to remind ourselves that yes, we should be interested in politics. Yes, we should be interested in the political future of this nation. Yes, we should be praying for our leaders. But ultimately, the kingdom of God does not rest on the next president. It never has. And it never will. And how reassuring and comforting that is to remember our refugee status in the final analysis. And Christ's reign will not depend as it never has depended on any earthly nation, political leader, or social agenda. Fifthly, it will strengthen us, the theology of exile, to count the cost of true discipleship. And James is going to come back to that time and time again, that to be Christ's disciples means what? We pick up our cross and we follow him. He's going to describe that in many different ways in this epistle. Number six, the theology of exile will compel us to deny, get serious about our habitual sins, personal interests, and non-essential comforts. We'll see it in chapters 2, 3, we'll see it again a little bit in 4, and we'll see it again in chapter 5. And finally, number 7, 
Why this is so important? A theology of exile will cause us to focus on Christ as our all in all. He's everything. Lord, I have no good besides you. He is the chief good. He is the greatest good. He is the source of all good. He is the only good. And he who has God as Father possesses everything, no matter what this life might bring. So you're getting a flavor, or you're getting a taste, rather, of just how significant this motif will be. As we get into different verses and get into different passages, and as we wrestle with what James is saying here and what he offers up there, how he has laid a very important foundation in how he has described these believers all the way back in verse 1. We are refugees. And if we don't get that, again, much of what James is going to bring to us, much of what the Spirit of God has to say to us, there's just going to be a disconnect because our perception of reality doesn't reflect reality. We need to enter reality. That is a biblical worldview of who we are. And then this passage from beginning to end, this book from beginning to end will resonate with us. You can take that away, Arthur. Thank you very much. We're going to hone in then on number two, that a theology of exile is a precursor, right? Uh, a necessary precursor in this life of the life to come. And James touches on that immediately, beginning in verse two. He will stay with it more or less through to verse 12. A little bit into verse 13. All we're biting off today, however, are verses 2, 3, and 4. Here's the lesson. Let me give it to you in a single sentence right up front. Here is what we are supposed to derive from this text. One sentence, simply put. How we respond to trials depends on how we look at trials. That's it. That is James' point in these three verses. How we respond to trials depends entirely, completely on how we look at trials. So the first part, let's take the first part of that sentence, how we respond to trials. He describes how in verse 2, remember, it is a commandment, 59 commands in this epistle. Here's the very first one. Count it. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I want you to notice three things. Three details quickly. First detail is this. Trials come in many forms. What does he say at the end of verse 2? Of various kinds. So one size doesn't fit all. There are various kinds they come in many forms. Illness. How many of our number are there right now at this moment? Illness. Bereavement. Depression. Slander. Persecution. Doubt. Loneliness. Estrangement. Unemployment. Oppression. Just living in our society now. Oppression, poverty, sorrow, 
weariness, pain, various kinds of trials. They take so many forms. I want to give you a little pastoral word of exhortation. Maybe someone here needs to hear it. I don't know, but here it is nevertheless. Please, my friend, you find yourself in the midst of a trial or a plural trials. Please, my friend, avoid the delusion of thinking you're unique. You're not. Avoid. It is a delusion. Please, please, please avoid the delusion of thinking no one has ever seen the trouble you've seen. Avoid the delusion, and this is, this is a... This is a difficult one. Avoid the delusion of thinking to yourself, boy, I wish I had his life. I wish, if only, I had her life. That is a self-induced delusion that will only compound the difficulty brought upon you by your trial. Most trials, please understand this, my friend. Most trials go unspoken, unnoticed, and unacknowledged. Most trials are carried in the innermost recesses of the soul, and they never, ever see the light of day. Oh, the empathy we must have for one another. And the complete life of delusion we are living if we think no one's got it quite like I've got it. Or that person seems to be getting off scotch-free. Well, that woman seems to have it real easy. If only, if only, if only. My friend, we barely see the tip of the iceberg of the trials that believers bear in this world. The second thing I want us to understand is this. Trials often take us by surprise. James says it, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you... I'm reading from the English Standard Version. When you meet trials. I wasn't in the room when they translated from the Greek. If I had been in the room, I would have said, I object. I don't know why they went with meet. It's the same word. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? And so we have a man. He is a Jew. And he is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And in the midst of his journey... He happens to meet a bunch of thieves. No. What happens? He falls among a bunch of thieves. They come out of nowhere and they overwhelm him. He can't escape. He can't run. It's the same verb here. The King James Version got it right. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into. These are things that sneak up and surprise you. These are things we are helpless to avoid, helpless to prevent, helpless to delay. Oh, understand that they often, more often than not, take us by surprise. And the third point I want us to get here is this. Trials, according to James, are to be accepted. Stronger than that. Trials are to be welcomed. It's slightly stronger than that. Trials are to be embraced with joy. Personally, personally, that is why I number this command 
among one of the most difficult in all of Scripture. Count it all joy. All joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I need to qualify that a little bit. Let me qualify it with two sentences. The first sentence is this. Uh, James is not. James is not. Thrice, James is not saying that trials in and of themselves are a cause of joy. They aren't. They're a cause of pain, grief, panic, worry, fear. If we embrace trials in and of themselves as a cause of joy, we are revealing a very unhinged mind. That is not James' point. James' point is this, second sentence, that the result of trials, the fruit of trials, is the cause of all joy. It brings us to the second half of the sentence, doesn't it? The first half of the sentence, how we respond to trials, we're pretty clear on that now, with all joy. Second half of the sentence, how we respond to trials, depends on how we look at trials. This is what he now tackles in verses 3 and 4. For, right? For, because you, you get this. You know, because God has said it's true. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Again, quickly, just notice three things. First thing is this. God uses trials to test our faith. Is it genuine? Genesis 22, Abraham. God tested Abraham. Abraham, take your son, Isaac, your only son, son whom you love. I'm going to show you a mountain, and I want you to sacrifice him there to me. Was that for God's benefit? Was it for God's benefit? Whose benefit was that for? Abraham. God was testing the genuineness of Abraham's faith. James is going to take us there in chapter 2. He's going to take us to that very text and tell us that that was when Abraham was actually justified by works. What does that mean? You're going to have to wait a few months before we get there. Well, what does that mean? He was justified by works, Genesis 22, when we actually know he was justified back in Genesis 15. What's going on there? No, it's in Genesis 22 that God puts Abraham's faith to the test. And he proves for Abraham's sake that his faith is genuine. Notice, secondly, that God tests our faith because he has a purpose in order to produce what? Steadfastness. stick to Don't know if that's a word. Just coined it. I think it's a good one. stick to It is to endure. Whatever comes without altering our convictions. And notice thirdly, God uses these trials to test our faith, to produce steadfastness so that what? What's the net result? We are perfect and we are complete. We are lacking in nothing. In other words, in a word, what? We are mature. We are mature. You've been watching the Olympics? If you haven't, you know what the Olympics are. 
I'm sure we've all tuned in a little bit to the Olympics and um, Usain Bolt, all right? And so, I mean, there is a finely tuned running machine, correct? Usain Bolt did not decide three weeks ago to compete in these Olympics. He probably decided when he was 12. And for the last 17 years, what has he been doing? He has been placing stress upon stress upon stress upon stress on his muscles. Why? So that they might reach their peak performance. That is exactly what God is doing in our lives through trials. He wants us to be finely tuned faith machines. Those who glorify him in our walk of faith. And one of the principal means by which he brings that about is by applying stress. There is no growth without the stress. There is no growth without the pressure. And so James wants us to understand. He wants us to gain this perspective understanding of what God is accomplishing through trials. And if that is how we look at trials, the result, the fruit, then that will influence how we respond to trials. And we will be indeed able to obey this command. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. It's summed up, I think, even more succinctly by Peter. Jot this reference down and check it out on your own time later. 1 Peter chapter 1, 7 through 8, Peter writes, in this you rejoice. Okay, sounds a lot like James. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do we see that? There is a God-ordained purpose, and it culminates in the praise, the glory, and the honor of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When we understand the purpose, and that purpose influences how we look at trials, focusing upon the result, that enables us, by God's grace, to do what? Count it all joy. How we respond to trials depends on how we look at trials. Now, let's, I want to make sure we are, we're getting this, we're understanding this. So let's do a little exercise. Let's, um, let's imagine right now, and some of you, you're not going to have to imagine. Most of us aren't going to have to imagine. Right now, you're in the midst of a trial. Name it in your mind. That's fine. Or let's imagine uh, between now and tomorrow morning, you fall into a trial. And you call me tomorrow morning. All right, Stephen, this, this is what I'm going through. Or this is just, just what happened Talk to me. Um, what am I going to say to you? That's a good question. What am I going to say to you? Now understand this. It depends on what you say to me. 
completely depends. I have probably seven or eight ways I could go. It's going to depend on what you say to me. And so let me present five scenarios, five questions which reflect, I think, the most common mindset when we, f- sets, when we find ourselves in the midst of trial. Hopefully, I-, I don't doubt if you do some thinking here, you'll be able to relate to at least one, perhaps two, three, four. Maybe you'll go right through the list. Yep, yep, check them, check them all off. But you listen for yourself in this. Five things I might hear from you. Not exactly in these words, but these words, these questions will reflect the mindset. Here's number one, what I might hear. Stephen, why is this happening? Why? Why is this happening? And so this individual, this person I I, I recognize right away is wrestling with what? The wisdom of God. Why, Why is this happening? And maybe that's you right now. Maybe you are, you're just, re- you, you, are we allowed to say that? I'm wrestling with the wisdom of God. Well, if you're qu- wondering why, 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 and you're trying to get inside God's head, and, and you know, why can't I just see the big picture? Why doesn't God reveal to me the purposes? Why don't I know the mind of God? Then yes, that is what you're wrestling with, the wisdom of God. And it, here's more or less what, what I would offer to you. I would remind you firstly, look, God's knowledge is limitless. It is limitless. We judge our circumstances according to our finite perspective, all right? Take the universe, take the universe, take a little grain of sand, and that still falls short of the comparison between God's knowledge and our knowledge. All right, you're getting the picture? Our perspective is just so finite, so limited, so restricted, but God's knowledge is limitless. I would add to that, look, God does not reveal to us the secret thing. The secret things belong to the Lord. The revealed things are for you and your children, right? I think I've said this before. I think it bears repeating. The secret things are what? They're secret. I know, it's just, where do I come up with these things? The secret things are secret. They're not for us. His ways are not our ways. His ways are inscrutable. His judgment's unsearchable. Oh, I heard this recently. Write this down. It it is precious. I need to hear this so often. An unresolved question is better than a wrong answer. An unresolved question is better, far better than a wrong answer. We do not always have to answer the question why, and very often we cannot answer the question why. We rest in the fact that God knows. And then I would add to that, God reveals all we need to know. He tells us that his purpose is to glorify himself by testing us, thereby producing steadfastness leading to maturity. The second individual, perhaps the question is this. Stephen, why doesn't God just make this go away? He has the power. I've prayed. I've prayed repeatedly, incessantly. I have begged. I have pleaded. Why doesn't he just make this go away? And here the individual is wrestling with what? Whether they realize it or not. The goodness of God. The goodness of God. This is a big one. This is actually probably the most difficult of the five. 
because it applies not merely to the realm of trials. It often applies to our total approach to life. Uh, fill in the blank, all right? Don't say it out loud, but just fill in the blank. Complete these sentences. Life will be better when... Dot, dot, dot. Oh, you put something in there, my friend. Some of us maybe crammed a dozen things in there. Life will be better when... Dot, dot, dot. Life will be easier when, if only, dot, dot, dot. I'll be really happy when, dot, dot, dot. What? I'm healthy. I'm married. I have three children. My husband gets his act together. My adult child starts treating me properly. I make a little more money. Finally get out of the home. That person isn't in my life anymore. That boss gets transferred out of state. And on and on and on it goes. That trial just goes away. And what do I say to that individual? I would say two things. It would take a while. I'm going to sum it up in 30 seconds, but this really does take a while. The first is this. Oh, friend, we never reach when. You get there and guess what? It changes faster than you got there. We never, ever reach when. You fill in one thing, then it's another thing, then it's another thing, then it's another thing. And I'd point them where, heavenward, only one thing will make us happy. Only one thing leads to a blessed life. Psalm 16, 2, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. When we can say that, and really, let's face it, only when we can say that are we enabled to obey this command, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Oh, you are my God, and I have no good apart from you. Here's the third question I might hear. Stephen, Stephen what, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to deserve this? This person is wrestling with not the wisdom of God, not the goodness of God, but the justice of God. It isn't fair. This isn't fair. Uh, this isn't according to the life I've lived. This isn't the deal I made with God. When I believed in the Lord Jesus and gave my life to him and said, yes, I will follow you, that was my end of the bargain. I expected him to uphold his end of the bargain, which was what? He'd make my life pretty good. He hasn't upheld his end of the bargain. This isn't fair. What did I do to deserve this? And my response would consist of a couple of phrases, probably not worded like this, actually most certainly not worded like this. I'd have to tread lightly here as well. But here's the first thing I would say. If what you have, if what you have right now is less than what you think you deserve, you will always be unhappy. Not only will you always be unhappy, you will be bitter. The greatest enemy to joy is a sense of entitlement. That's it, folks, it is. The greatest number one enemy to joy, gratitude, thanksgiving, 
is a sense of entitlement. If what you have is less than what you think you deserve, you will not be able to obey this command. It will be impossible. The second sentence is this. Notice the play on words. If what you have is greater than what you think you deserve, you will always count it all joy. You will be fulfilled. You will be content. You will be happy. All I deserve, and the Bible testifies to this over and over again, all I deserve is God's eternal punishment. That is all I deserve. That is all God owes me. And when I think on that, do you know what it means? It means this, that every sunny day, every fit of laughter, every cuddle with my children, every sunrise, every early morning cup of coffee, every snowflake, every piece of clothing, every bike ride, every day of health, every restful night, every summer vacation, every little pack of jalapeno chips becomes what? A gift. And therefore what? A cause of celebration. A cause of rejoicing. Because I don't deserve any of it. I have no right to any of it. I cannot, and you know, I'm getting excited. You know why I'm getting excited about this? Because I'm preaching to myself. That's why I'm getting excited. I cannot point to anything good in my life right now and claim it as a right. There is nothing. It is all a gift. And gift upon gift upon gift upon gift. And if what you have, you recognize you have, is greater then what you think, you know you deserve, you will be happy. And by the Spirit of God, strengthen to count it all joy when we do meet, fall into trials of various kinds. Here's the fourth question, the fourth person that might call me. And their question might be this. Look, where is God in this? Okay, I'm not doubting his, his, his wisdom. I'm not questioning his goodness. I know what I deserve. Justice, yeah, these all line up. Just his love. Where's the sense of the divine love? Why is God hiding his face in the midst of this? Why does it seem as though he has abandoned me in this? That is the question. Where is God? Thomas Manton, an old English Puritan, he has helped me tremendously in answering this question. And basically the crux of his answer is this, look, God is not a passive bystander when it comes to our affliction. He is not a passive bystander. On the contrary, listen to what Manton says. We are not. We are not in the furnace by chance or at the will of our enemies. On the contrary, the time is set and appointed by God. In other words, he is over it, he is through it, and he is in it. And then Manton adds the following. I love this. God sits by the furnace looking after his metal. 
He sits by the furnace looking after his metal. He knows how much he can take, how much heat it can take, it can take, and he knows exactly what is necessary to remove the dross, to refine the gold, that which he is looking for. And in the midst of it, he never leaves us, he never forsakes us, and he most certainly never, ever abandons us to our own devices. Where is God in the midst of your trial? My friend, he is in the thick of it. He is right there with you. The 23rd Psalm is the place to go. So many places you could go. But just this assurance that God is not, he is not a passive bystander. The fifth question. This individual isn't wrestling with any of these things. This individual simply calls, simply shows up at my office. And look, you know, I heard that sermon yesterday. Here's what I'm going through. One, two, three, four. No, I'm not, I'm not there. All, all, all I'm wrestling with is guidance. All I want to know, I see that command there. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I, I, how? Just, just give me something I get my teeth in, sink my teeth into. Just the, the, the how. That as I approach my day, as I, as I pray, and as I seek to, to live it out before the Lord in the midst of this trial, how? Um, I would say a number of things. Let me limit it to four. Here they are. And just quickly, I offer them to you for your meditation. Number one, I would say to that individual, that man, that woman, oh, please behold Christ's cross. Behold. You need to be looking. You need to be looking to Christ. You need to be gazing upon the cross. You know, I think it's the next care group. I think you're into Psalm 130, aren't you? The next study. Now start reading it. Start thinking that through. Tremendous phrase in Psalm 130. God does not mark my iniquities. He doesn't mark them. Oh, in the shadow of the cross, because I am one with his beloved as a Christian, someone who has believed in the Lord Jesus, believes in the Lord Jesus. God does not mark my iniquities. He does not count my sins against me because he has counted them against Christ upon Calvary's cross. Oh, he has forgiven me. God has forgiven me every shameful thing I've ever done. God deals with me on the basis of his mercy, not my performance. God promises me an eternity of incomprehensible joy. You know, a great help here, get into the hymns. Get the songs. Get some precious stanzas from the hymns. Here's one of the best when you want to behold Christ's cross. My sin, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I think we missed the last line. I think we missed the intent of the last line. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. He isn't praising the Lord. What's he doing? He's commanding himself to praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Reflect upon Calvary's cross. Think of what the Lord Jesus, out of his love for you, what he has done, what he has brought you out of, saved you from, the cesspool of your own sin. 
What he has made you, a child of God, and all that he has promised you, an eternity of incomprehensible joy. You want to count it all joy? Then behold Christ's cross. I would add to that, follow Christ's example. Why? Because he's already been where we are. Oh, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I think I've got trials. The life of the Lord Jesus was trial upon trial upon trial upon trial, whereby the Lord Jesus learned obedience. The Lord Jesus learned endurance. The Lord Jesus learned steadfastness. The Lord Jesus learned not to look to the left nor to the right, but straight ahead as he came to accomplish God's will for him. And because of that joy that he kept ever before him, he was able to endure even Calvary's cross. We're supposed to look to him as the, our, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That he has been there and he has done it. And there he stands in all of his glory to help us. The third thing I would add is this, seek Christ's honor. When we count trials all joy, we proclaim the truth. We proclaim the truth that Christ is more valuable to us than all that life can give and all that death can take. And do you have any idea how much glory Christ gets from that? By persevering in the midst of trials, we are making it known that I value Christ above all else. Anything life can give me and anything death can take from me. No, Christ is my all in all. And this resounds for his praise and his honor and his glory at his revelation. And let me add just quickly, fourthly to that. You got it? Behold Christ's cross, follow Christ's example, seek Christ's honor, and serve Christ's people. Be other-focused. So important. Oh, be other-focused. Seeking out the people of God. Empathizing with the people of God in their trials. And seeking to be, to be used as that instrument of help and comfort and strength in their lives, as the Spirit of God works through you. You know, what do you think we need? Or what is it I really need to do all of that? It sounds pretty straightforward, doesn't it? I mean, it, it almost sounds easy as I, as I lay it out before us uh, in these points with these lessons. And yet it is invariably something we still struggle with on so many levels, don't we? What is it we need above anything else? We need wisdom. And so what is the very next thing James is going to say in this epistle? If any of you lacks wisdom. Wisdom regarding what? What I have just commanded you to do, if any of you lacks wisdom 
Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. What does that mean? Well, you'll want to make sure you reserve your seat for next Sunday. Because that's where we're going to pick it up in the will of the Lord. Read ahead, verses 5 through 8. Oh, our great need is wisdom. What is this wisdom? What does it mean to pray for it? And how does God always answer this request? Our Father, we praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we praise you because he does indeed possess the words of eternal life. We thank you, those of us who are Christians, we thank you that there was a time when you brought us to Calvary's cross, and there we have stood ever since, looking to the Lord Jesus, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. And he indeed is the source of all our hope and comfort and strength. We pray that you might take these words now that have been spoken, apply it to your people, Again, we pray for those present who, as of yet, are outside of Christ, that uh, in your sovereignty you might take something that was said in their hearing and apply it by your Holy Spirit deep within, bringing about conviction of sin and showing them that there is indeed forgiveness. There is indeed a fountain filled with blood that will wash away the deepest stain. And it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things for your glory. And we seek them from you in Christ's matchless name. Amen.